Please join me for a word of prayer. It's taken from our last hymn, Christ, you are the wood made flesh, and you turn water into wine. We pray that you would fill our empty cups again with grace and truth divine. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, we're, I want to reflect with you this morning on the subject of change, how it happens in our lives. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about the motivation for, for change. Uh, and uh, this week I want to think a little bit about how it happens, change, real and lasting change. How does it, how does it occur in my life and your life? And uh, it's hard, isn't it? Anyone who has, has uh, really tried to make a, a change to a, a lasting habit or anyone who has struggled with any sort of addiction knows that just a change, uh, a change of pattern, a change of life is really difficult. I think in the Christian world, you'd call this subject spiritual formation, how we are formed, not just spiritual formation is kind of broad to put a fine point on it, how are we formed and to be more like Jesus, so spiritual formation towards the end that we would look and act more like Jesus, his son, uh, how does that happen? I took a class on this subject in seminary some years ago, not, and, and in that class, you and I would probably come up with the same basic curriculum of those things that are required for our spiritual formation, those things you need. What do you need? Well, you have to go to church. Uh, you need to read the Bible, uh, prayer. There are a whole, there's a pretty predictable list of things that you and I would put on that list of things that are going to form you and me, and they're all good. They're absolutely necessary. But after several years, 14, 15, however long I've been in pastoral ministry, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that the most effective means of your transformation is hidden in, in plain sight. The most effective means for your spiritual transformation, you've probably not given hardly any thought uh, to it, and yet you do it every day. Turn with me to John chapter 2. This is the first sign that Jesus Christ did. And let's look first at the result of that sign. Verse 11, the, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So the result of this first sign is that Jesus was revealed, something of his nature was known, and then look at the final statement. His disciples believed in him. Now belief certainly implies more than just mental assent. It implies certainly their lives, uh, uh, they followed him, they, they trusted him in Jesus, they wanted to be like Jesus. So a lot is packed into that little word, they believed in him. Uh, this is the first step of their spiritual formation. And this is a result of the first sign. And considering the really significant results of the first sign, it's a very odd miracle. Right, so keep in mind the, the, the weight, the results of the first sign. And I just want to point out a few oddities about this first miracle. And when we look at what Jesus did, it really doesn't seem to match up with the result it had. So the first odd thing about this miracle is that Jesus appears, is in the background. On the third day there was a wedding and the mother of Jesus was there. It appears that Jesus' mother was the, the initial guest. And Jesus was uh, probably not on the primary guest list, but you know, was on the, uh, was, came to the wedding because Mary was there, which is sort of an odd way to begin the story. So Jesus' mother was there, and so Jesus came to the miracle, uh, to, the, the, to the wedding at Cana. Note that uh, no one is aware of, of the source of the, of the wine. 
So they took uh, to the master of the feast. The master of, fe of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he did not know where it had come from. And presumably none of the guests knew where the wine had come from. So while many people enjoyed the fruit of, of the miracle, no pun intended, very few people knew the source of it. Why? Because Jesus was in the background. Strange. Again, consider the result. Many people believed in him, or his disciples first believed in him, but yet Jesus is strangely hidden, veiled. Second oddity about this story is the miracle is very mundane. It's very domestic. Just think of some of the things that Jesus did, some of the dramatic things like walking on water, calming the storms. Wow. Think of some of the positive impact that some of his miracles had. Healing a le cleansing a leper, uh, healing the lame, raising someone from the grave. Those are things that really... Uh, Think of the result of this wedding, of this miracle. Well, there was a great party. But you compare that to the benefit of some of his previous miracles, and again, it just seems a little bit, hmm, what's going on? Water to wine results in his disciples' spiritual formation. The third oddity sort of uh, fits in with the second, that this miracle occurs in a very domestic setting. Occurs, it occurs at a wedding in Cana. Now, when we think wedding, we think the culmination of romance. Every, every romance novel has a similar plot of uh, twists and turns and broken engagements. And at the very end, the, the, the couple comes together and they're married and they live happily ever after. Right? So, we tend to think of marriage as the culmination of romance. And that is simply not how many cultures, certainly a more a traditional culture, would think of marriage. Marriage was not the culmination of romance. Marriage instead was the, uh, the beginning of something new, the beginning of a new family. Almost every traditional culture recognized the importance of the family as that fundamental building block of society through which uh, children were reared and raised and to take their responsible place in, uh, and certainly in the church or in a religious community as well. But you see, you see the point. The family or marriage represented the beginning of a family. A little bit less a culmination of romance, nothing wrong with romance, but just a difference of priorities. And so here, let me summarize, a f and all this, again, keep in mind the impact. This miracle didn't occur at a religious service, so Jesus wasn't preaching, it occurred at a very domestic setting, it occurred through a very mundane miracle of water made into wine, and Jesus was a little bit in the background, yet, nonetheless, the disciples believe in him because of it. Let me summarize. Jesus reveals his glory. His followers believe in him through a domestic miracle, that being water made to wine, performed in a domestic setting, that being a wedding, the beginning of a family, in which Jesus was strangely unnoticed and in the background. And if we begin to ponder that summary, I think we can begin to see why it makes perfect sense that the disciples first believed in Jesus here. So here's the point, the, here's what I want to unpack with you. That domestic life is often the unnoticed training ground for our spiritual formation. 
So that's the unnoticed training ground. Domestic life, domestic miracle, domestic setting. Yet in this domestic setting, his disciples follow him. So what I want to unpack is this reality that domestic life, home life, home life, whether you're single, married, kids at home, kids away, no kids, your home life is the most formative and yet often unnoticed force for your spiritual formation. I want to make three observations. Number one, we encounter Christ in the home. Number two, we are formed to be like Christ in the home. And at number three, the glory of Christ is revealed by the home. I want to unpack each one of those. First, we encounter Christ in the home. I think if most of us wrote our spiritual autobiography, if we had to explain how we met Christ and how we uh, began to follow him, most of our biographies would begin with this sentence. I was raised in a Christian home. My mom and dad took me to church. Now, that's not true for all of us. Some of you, that's Definitely not true, and God worked in you through, through unique ways and great ways, and I wish that happened more. For most people, for myself, for my wife, hopefully for my children, their spiritual bi biography will begin, I was raised in a Christian home. My dad took me to church because he was a preacher that I had to go. Uh, <laughs> and... And we have a tendency to look at someone else's story who you know, may have a little bit more dramatic, who, who appears that God reached out and plucked them off of one path and set them on another path. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. And we can look with envy and think, gosh, I wish my story was a little bit more cool. But I want us to note that God's normal way to call people to himself is through domestic life. Jesus hidden Right? And so what I want to tell you, if that is your story, if your story begins, uh, you know, my mom took me to church, my dad took me to church, and I really just kind of grew up knowing God. Good. Praise God. That's God's normal way of working. Absolutely. You and I have to take ownership of our faith. I'm not suggesting that just because mom and dad did it, that's good enough for you. No. Each one of us has to take our place and affirm uh, what was our parents and make it our own. But you see my point. So don't discount that story if it's yours. Secondly, don't discount the opportunity if you have it in front of you. I know that this point doesn't apply to all of us, but some of you are parents. And the most effective means, the, most, the single greatest thing you can have for the cause of Christ is probably in your own home. Uh, we have six children, and I, I'm often asked, why, Glade, why do you have so many kids? And there are, there, are, there are numerous responses to that question, depending on the setting. And one of the responses is, well, you know, I'm planting a church, and you have to grow a church somehow. That's a slow growth process, but it's a very reliable one. And if it continues through the generations, you don't have to do too many generations before you've got yourself a pretty good-sized church. I won't be around there to appreciate it, but... <laughs> Let me just tell you a story of um, Jonathan Edwards. You know Jonathan Edwards? He's probably the most brilliant mind America ever produced. He was a congregational pastor up in New England. Uh, he's well-known for his sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's a little bit of a parody of him. He was a phenomenal preacher who really celebrated the grace and the mercy of God. And... 
So here's a story. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he lived at the dawn of the American Revolution, 1700s. Jonathan Edwards has at least 929 descendants. Of those 929 descendants, 430 became pastors, 86 became university professors, 13 became university presidents. Uh, 75 were published, five were elected to Congress, two to the Senate, and one was vice president. It's one man. And probably a very faithful wife <laughs> with that one man. <laughs> Max Jukes was a peer of Jonathan Edwards. Max Jukes spent most of his life in prison. He is known to have at least 1,026 descendants. Of those 1,026 descendants, 300 spent on average 13 years in prison. 109 were public prostitutes, 680 were admitted alcoholics. It's kind of heavy-handed, are you an Edwards or a Jukes? But probably none of us are going to be on that extreme. But which side of the pendulum are you on? The greatest contribution that you can make as a parent, and I know that, again, not all, that doesn't apply to all of us, is in your own home. And the single greatest thing that you can do as a parent to ensure that your children will practice the faith as an adult, that they will continue the legacy that you began, you want to know what it is? By far and away, the most significant thing you can, you can do is not a personal quiet time with your children. Personal quiet time is great. It's not sending your kids to mission trips, not making sure they're involved with youth group or young life. Those are all great. The single greatest thing you can do as a parent to ensure your children follow Christ as an adult is go to church. By far and away. And it makes sense, doesn't it? A young person doesn't have the bandwidth to wrestle with metaphysical questions like, does God exist or is he good? Does he hear my prayers? But a young person does have the bandwidth to know that God deserves an hour of my time. So your faithfulness to Sunday worship is the single greatest contribution you can make as a parent to the faith life of your adult child. So to our first point, the glory of Jesus is often revealed in the domestic setting. Two applications. If that is your story, don't discount it. If that is your opportunity, don't miss it. Second, not only, only do we meet Christ in the home, but we are formed to be like Christ through the home. Who has seen the speech or walk, uh, read the book, Make Your Bed? Okay, Make Your Bed. It's worth Googling. It is a, a commencement speech delivered in 2014 to the University of Texas by a Navy commander and a Navy SEAL. And he starts, the, the, the motto of UT is, what you do here changes the world. So he plays off that sentiment, change the world, and says, do you want to change the world? I have 10 things you can do. Number one, make your bed. Here's what he says. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will turn into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things matter in life. If you cannot do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. The speaker continues from there, nine other things, some of which he learned uh, through his training as a Navy SEAL, but uh, some of which he, there's another place you learn to make your bed. Where is that other place that you learn to make your bed? At home. You see, 
It's at your home. It's through your home that you learn some of these daily uh, disciplines that shape us and form us. This is the unnoticed formative uh, force for your spiritual formation. If you were to make a list of those of 10 things that you needed to have a happy home and made a list of 10 things that you needed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I can almost guarantee that you're going to have 100% coincidence. Think about it. Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Where do you learn the daily disciplines? Where do you learn to make your bed every day? Where do you learn to take out the trash? Where do you learn to take out the dishes? Where, where do you learn the daily discipline of picking up your cross? No, Jesus didn't mean your chores when he said pick up your cross, although some children may think that's what he meant. But we learn the daily disciplines of picking up those big crosses through the little disciplines that you learn at home, making your bed, etc. Hospitality. It's in the home that you learn the art of hospitality, that you learn to welcome someone in. You say, how can, I, how can I care for you? Can I take your coat? Let me focus on you. Hospitality, go on down the list. Everything that you need to be a follower of Christ, I can almost guarantee it's something that you learn or you should learn in the home. A bishop named Francis de Sales said, good manners are halfway to holiness. I think that's just a great sentiment. Good manners are halfway to holiness. And think about it. Behind the statement, may I, there lies a respect for the other. May I? You're not going to impose yourself. Behind the word sorry lies a contrition and a humility of spirit necessary for the home and necessary for the Christian life. Thank you for passing the salt Thank you for open, all necessary in the home and uh, reveals an, an attitude of gratitude. Again, essential for faith. What's the point? The point is that your domestic setting is the unnoticed forming place of spiritual formation for you. So make your bed. We need to recover this image of the church that was used by, pardon me, we need to recover this image of the home that was used by the, little, uh, the early church. The early church would refer to the home as the little church. Every home, every home was a little church. Not because you would, one would take religious iconography or other paintings and stick religious stuff on their in their house. No, every home is a little church because the formative things happen in the home. It's because of the quotidian rhythms. I discovered that word. I love it. The quotidian, the domestic rhythms of life are an unnoticed, an unseen tool for our Christian discipleship. We are formed to be like Christ in the home. Finally, so we've thought about that we encounter Christ in the home. We are formed to be like Christ by the home. Finally, the glory of Christ revealed through the home. Now, I have no desire whatsoever to be a cultural critic. I simply want to observe that there is a growing confusion about what constitutes a family, what constitutes a home, and the emphasis 
uh, of the home and the family are waning. We can all certainly agree with that. And the repercussions of this we're about to experience. Did you know they're about to hit a demographic peak? About two or three years. You've probably seen some of these news articles. I think five, 10 years, the uh, population is going to cease to grow. And if trends continue, it's going to decline. And precipitously, and it's already happening, you probably are aware of this. Places like Japan and Russia are just demographically uh, very challenged. And here's what I want us to know, that uh, the Christian faith has good news about the family. We have good news. We have the gospel of the family. And there is something good and attractive that points to the goodness and the attractiveness of Christ, who began his ministry under the sign of a marriage. The church has good news for those who are single, called to the celibate state, that in the church you can find not a perfect family, not an exact replica of a family, but you can find approximate family. You can have brothers. You can have sisters. You can have spiritual fathers. You can live a full and fulfilled life in the single and the celibate state. The Christian church has good news about one man and one woman coming together for a committed union and for when it is God's will for the gift of children. And I just think that the church, the good news of the family is going to become increasingly good news and increasingly a sign that points to the goodness of Christ as uh, we've, we, we, the culture and the world has forgotten the good news of the family. I think I've said enough there. So three points. Three points about your domestic life. Number one, Jesus is revealed to most of us in a domestic setting. If that's your story, great. Don't discount it. Number two, or secondly, if that's your opportunity, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Second point, spiritual formation occurs most powerfully, most unnoticed in the home. Develop those good domestic rhythms. Yes, please, may I. Thank you. You're not just teaching good manners. You're shaping souls. You're shaping your own soul. And three, the glory of Christ is revealed by the family. We have good news. We have the gospel of the family. And Jesus Christ began his ministry under its sign.